Hi, and welcome again to the Community Broadband Bits podcast, produced by the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. This is Lisa Gonzalez. In this episode of our podcast, Christopher Mitchell introduces us to Sanjay Jolly, Policy Director for the nonprofit Prometheus Radio Project. The group advances the work of low-power radio stations across the U.S., Sanjay describes how legislative changes in the 1990s threatened the existence of local radio. Prometheus and its network led the charge to fight back and regain footing for local radio through intense grassroots efforts. Chris and Sanjay also discuss the parallels between local radio and local broadband networks. Here's Chris and Sanjay. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Today we're going to change it up a little bit and talk about different forms of media. We have Sanjay Jolly, the policy director at the Prometheus Radio Project with us today. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. Can you just briefly tell us what Prometheus is? Yeah, the Prometheus Radio Project is an organization. We're based in Philadelphia, um, and we help um, support and build community radio stations. And how long has Prometheus been active in these issues? Prometheus has been around, um, well, now going on uh, 15 years, 1998. Um, and, the, and before that, you know, the folks who started Prometheus were doing uh, were doing pirate radio out of West Philly. So they've been involved sort of, you know, in the struggle a long time. I, had, I just have to throw out a plug for Philadelphia. It's close to my heart. I was born in Allentown, raised uh, in the Lehigh Valley. And uh, we still, my family remains diehard Eagles fans despite living in Minnesota for <laughs> 20 right. years. Good to so, hear Yes, and I look forward to actually grabbing a steak sandwich, uh, a cheesesteak, when I uh, am back in Philly in, uh, well, just a few weeks at this point. So anyway, it's uh, Prometheus. You're a terrific organization. We've uh, we've followed you for many years um, because not only do we support local com- uh, local non-commercial and even commercial radio, we support local radio generally, but you've been tremendously successful at um, realizing your agenda, I guess, and so – um, can you tell us a little bit about how, uh, what challenges Prometheus has faced and, and just lead us toward the recent historic legislation that was passed? Yeah, as I, as I provide this history, you know, you mentioned that Prometheus has, has been so successful, but it, it hasn't always seemed like that through the steps. And it's only in retrospect uh, that, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's very, it's, it's really remarkable everything the organization's accomplished. You know, that the, the, the 90s, were, were an exciting time for media, but they, from a regulatory standpoint, they were pretty terrible. Uh, you know, the Telecommunications Act 96, it was massive deregulation happening. Um, a lot of corporate consolidation, that was really the rise of Clear Channel was, was, um, after the Telecommunications Act. Um, and through this whole period, you have a lot of, um, a lot of pirate radio stations springing up because folks, um, who are being, you know, whose voices were being shut out of, you know, of their local media landscape were, were resorting to pirate radio, were resorting to, to um, broadcasting without a license. So let me just interrupt you there. Um, is the problem with Clear Channel that it was basically taking a lot of stations that had been local and basically firing a lot of the staff and then piping in the music from far away? Was was that the principal objection? Yeah, I mean, it's not as if, you know, corporate radio was amazing before 1996, but, I mean, what you saw was, was um, you know, you had these, you know, Cumulus and Clear Channel and, and, uh, and these corporate giants buying up, um, all of these stations across the country. Um, and yeah, I mean, you were listening to the, I'm from Detroit. So you're listening to the same formats in Detroit as you were in Philadelphia, as you are in Topeka, Kansas. Uh, and really radio now, um, at least commercial corporate radio, it's the same anywhere you go in the country. So you took away that local voice. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you totally stripped the, the newsrooms and the staff. So, I mean, there were massive layoffs in the industry. 
uh, I mean, that they're still reeling from, do you know? And I mean, that sort of lack of diversity of content, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it really, I think, strangle, you know, radio is such a, such a powerful medium in these communities and it, um, the lack of, of diversity of voices, um, and of, of local voices, uh, you know, I mean, it really, it strangled news, it strangled culture. I mean, it was just, it was terrible for, for local media. So Larry Lessig tells us not to break the law, but to change it. And uh, you, you, you noted that, that a, a natural response to this was that people began reclaiming the airwaves uh, using, uh, using pirate radio stations, stations that were not officially sanctioned by the FCC, although generally in unused spaces. It's not like you were you know, taking other people's property or anything. By and large, um, the pirate radio stations were, with few exceptions, they weren't interfering with, um, with existing stations. Um, but yeah, I mean, they, they were operating against the law. And the FCC, and you know, they operated for really a long time without the FCC really caring. You know, especially in the 90s, the FCC was really ramping up enforcement on, on pirate radio. You know, th- there had been sort of an understanding that, you know, fine, run your pirate radio station. And then after the 90s, well, you know, after the FCC was shutting down all these stations, and then the backdrop of this is, you know, all the, the corporate consolidation after the Telecommunications Act in 1996, um, and there was a real outcry. You know, you're, you're strangling local voices, um, and these are public airwaves. It, it bred an activist community around community radio um, and around local radio. And um, so during the Clinton administration, you know, there were all sorts of protests. At one point, Prometheus led, led an action um, at the National Association of Broadcasters, um, which is the trade group that represents corporate broadcasters. A very powerful trade group at that. Yeah. And um, they, uh, you know, they had a big protest outside of the NAB headquarters in Washington, D.C. They... They hoisted um, a, the, the flag of the Jolly Roger uh, onto um, sort of onto their main flagpole. I mean, it was a really, you know, really bringing attention to uh, to this issue. Um, and so the FCC did it a little bit, and then you know they, you know, after sort of a lot of bureaucracy, they issued a low power service at 100 watts and at 10 watts. Um, and so nonprofits and and schools and then sort of local municipal agencies could apply for, for a broadcast license at low power. But what ended up happening was as, you know, so all, people were super, I mean, there was a flood of applications from all over the country. Uh, I mean, there was just so much enthusiasm around this. You know, with the NAB, with the support of National Public Radio, lobbied hard to for legislative action. And so what Congress did in um, 2000 and Bill Clinton signed, there was a piece of legislation that, it you know, it, it instituted these, Restrictions, these spacing restrictions um, on low power FM, um, that essentially, I mean, barred at every major market. I think, I think to some extent, you can think of it as if, uh, you know, if on the highway, if all of a sudden Congress said, um, you know, you can't be within 15 feet of another vehicle at any point in time, um, you know, if on your right or your left, all of a sudden the highways become much less useful. Exactly. It's so, just, it's totally, it's a far, un, it's an unnecessary guard band, basically. And there was a lot of junk science behind that decision. So, I mean, it was, it was devastating for, you know, there was so much enthusiasm around. Or, and so the vast, vast majority of the applications that were, that were filed with the FCC were thrown out. Really, the only folks who get on the air were in rural areas where, where there was tons of open, open spectrum. People were furious. I mean, folks were really, really upset. Uh, and so for uh, the better part of, of 10 years, um, Prometheus led a coalition with some fantastic organizations um, like Free Press and like United Church of Christ um, to pass the local community radio act. 
and those are a lot of the same groups that we find working on our same issues as well. And I know Prometheus has been supportive of our issues, and we've tried to be supportive of yours as well. So it's a, exactly. I, I fully agree that this is a great group of people and organizations. Yeah, so it's great people, and it's a very tight knit community. I just wish it were bigger. Yeah, so you know they they led the, this coalition on this issue um, to pass the local community radio act um, that eliminated those restrictions, those those third adjacent channel restrictions, um, and required the FCC to start issuing LPFM licenses. Low power FM, yep. Yes, low power FM. And so, just to recap, then basically, you have Clinton signing the bill um, in 2000, which really restricted the amount of space that was available, basically made none of these stations available in, in urban areas. And how long did it take exactly until you were able to have the bill that restored the ability to have these licenses? Um, the bill was signed in 2011. That's a long time. And it's like you said, I think it, it, when you're going through it and you don't know if you're ever going to succeed, I think you just have these moments where you just feel like, well, did we just lose? Is it over? Right. It seems like looking back, there's almost like some people then view it as some sort of historic inevitability, as though you would have known along the way that you would eventually win. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it was it was far from inevitable, um, just like, you know, I, I think analogous to that, folks treat the current media landscape as this kind of inevitable result of, of history. And it's not, you know, it, it's it's what we have is not some natural end product. Um, it was it was designed in a very particular way with, with specific interest in mind. Um, and I think folks folks miss that point when they think of um, you know what the media landscape looks like in this country. What is the opportunity now that's uh, like literally coming up on us in a few months? Yeah, so in in October, from October 15th through 29th, the FCC will have a filing window open, um, and nonprofit organizations and schools and universities, um, tribes and tribal organizations, uh, and public safety agencies can apply for a 100 watt low power FM. Um, license. In 100 watt, about how far would that signal travel in a, you know, at some sort of average environment? Yeah, on sort of average flat terrain, um, five to ten miles uh, in any direction. And in a more urban area, somewhat less than that. Um, in a more urban area, somewhat less, but also in an urban area, I mean, the population density is uh, so much higher that, um, I mean, if you're, we're talking about, you know, New York or even some of the some of the middle-sized urban areas like, like Pittsburgh or, or St. Louis. I mean, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of people in this coverage area. What does one have to do uh, in order to um, not just qualify, but to be likely to receive a station? Organizations can, you know, can apply through the FCC website. There has to be an available FM channel within the area of, of the proposed transmitting antenna. If your organization is the only one to apply for a particular channel in a particular area, and there are no problems with your application. So, for example, you know, you're not. So folks actually, and this was very contentious, is folks who, who have ever operated a radio station without a license are ineligible. Oh, wow. Which, which was a very, very contentious, uh, I think, painful issue for, for a lot of folks. You know, certain folks who have been convicted of, um, you know, of, of drug possession felonies are ineligible for federal benefits. So, so as long as you're not deemed ineligible along those criteria, and you're the only organization applying for a particular channel in your area, you'll receive the license. If multiple organizations are applying for the same channel in the same area, the FCC allows an opportunity for those stations to um, to engage in a settlement, essentially sharing time on, on the frequency. If that ends up you know, not working out for whatever reason, um, the FCC has a point system, um, and then they award the LPFM license to the organization 
with the most number of points. And so these points include um, being local in your community for more than two years. Um, that's one point. Uh, being a tribe or a tribal organization is, is a point. Um, having um, a publicly accessible studio that's open for several hours, you know, for a certain number of hours a week. Um, another point is uh, to uh, a pledge to, um, and, and this pledge is enforced by the FCC, to um, produce a certain number of hours of, of local content per week. So whatever organization has the highest number of points will be awarded the frequency, um, will be awarded the LPFM license for that channel. You know, if, if there's a tie for the highest number of points, you know, you can either reach a settlement or it's shared among the three um, organizations that have been in the community the longest, who have been incorporated as nonprofits or whatever the longest. And I presume that people that, that are really interested and that need some more details, they can just go to Prometheus uh, website? Yeah, and the, the two the two places where anyone can find um, resources on this are the FCC website and the Prometheus Radio Project website, which is prometheusradio.org. Uh, and there you can find, um, I mean, there are lots of, of webinars and fact sheets on um, the October window, on um, the application window. There's a lot about the history of community radio in the United States through step-by-step webinars and, and uh, guidebooks on how to complete an application. Um, there's, we host a, an online community called Radio Spark, which connects the community, you know, the LPFM community. Uh, and so it's especially useful for asking questions on, on forums and also for uh, connecting with broadcast engineers and broadcast attorneys. Um, we also host something called RFree, which is a channel finder. So you can uh, find available um, FM channel, LPFM channels uh, in, in your area by just putting in the zip code or the address. Oh, terrific. I want to I wanna change the subject just a little bit to um, ask you uh, a question that popped into my head after we started talking. Um, which did you like better, Pump Up the Volume or Pirate Radio? Pirate Radio. It's a fantastic film. I, uh, I watched it twice in two days. I, the first time I saw it, I was just blown away. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Just thought I'd, uh, I just thought I'd throw it out there. You know, those are sort of the two premier radios in, or two premier movies in my mind that sort of deal with this issue. Well, Pump Up the Volume has the classic, classic um, phrase. It, it was uh, it was talk hard. I think of that every now and then. Um, talk hard. I like it. The last thing I really wanted to hit on was pulling together um, this thing that we talk about most often, uh, community-owned uh, internet networks with uh, locally-owned radio. And, and I'm just sort of curious if you if you see any natural synergies uh, between these two different uh, ideas. You know, the, the physical infrastructure aligns very well. I mean, so if the personnel have the same expertise that they would, you know, relatively the same expertise that they would need for, for municipal Wi-Fi network. You know, they have the space. I mean, it's sort of on a practical level, it works out really well. Uh, for You know, I mean, and I have, we haven't seen that a lot in the U.S. Um, because really these things are in their infancies. But, you know, we work with a group... Um, called the Palabra Radio Project in Oaxaca, Mexico. Their community radio station also runs a municipal cell phone network. And it's the same folks who are doing the maintenance on them. I mean, and it's, it, it's a really, I think it's a very scalable model to, um, to align the two. But on, on sort of on a less day-to-day level, the, the underlying theories, the underlying um, ideologies and interests, I mean, are, are really the same. And it's, it's about people controlling their own 
telecommunication infrastructure, controlling their own media. Right, their ability to communicate, literally. Right, exactly, their, their right to communicate. The more that these organizations, or that these media, both you know, community radio and municipal Wi-Fi, grow individually, the more they can do to support each other. Um, and, you know, in part because the once these things ingrain themselves in a community, it raises so much consciousness. You know, I, I don't think folks realize how awful the telecom infrastructure is in the United States and how screwed folks get in, in, in this landscape. Uh, and so I think the, the underlying ideologies between both of these between both of these tools, you know, are they come from the same place, which is about people controlling their right to communicate. And, and there hasn't been a lot of maybe partly in fault of organizations like Prometheus and, and not doing a good job of, of, of really educating people about this is the level of consciousness on this issue across the country is not very high. And I think it's, in, it's increasing now. And I think folks realize, for example, with this, the NSA spying um, situation that's going on right now, you know, and, and lava bit being shut down, for example, people are, are seeing why it's important to control their own communications infrastructure. I just got back from a short trip to Glasgow, Kentucky, where um, it's actually the site of the nation's oldest uh, municipal broadband network. And it was actually the first community in the United States to have broadband available to every address in the community back in 1994. And I interviewed a, a, a guy there who owns a local radio station. And he started just going on the radio to do local news. Now, Glasgow is not particularly small. It's about 17,000 people, if I remember correctly. But it's halfway between Louisville and Nashville. And there's some other smaller towns around there. But they don't have a lot of local media doing news. And so he would just get on the radio each morning and talk about local news that he'd read in the newspaper or somewhere else. But there was no one else broadcasting local news. With the municipally owned network, which carries uh, local programming, uh, he actually started putting his radio show on the television as well, so people could access it in a different way. Um, and, and the ability of people to have a local radio show and to have local television has really sparked, uh, I think, more people to think about it over the years. And they have a number of local programming shows that, that come about. They have people that you know want to broadcast local sporting events, and they do a lot of the work themselves to cover it. Um, and so I just – it's one of those things where I think to some extent a lot of us who aren't used to seeing these opportunities around us think that there's no demand for it and that uh, you sort of think, well, what exactly would a local radio station do? And like there's millions of things it could do if people had the opportunity, right? Right. It's like saying, you know, what can a democracy do? Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but, you know, the thing is I, I – Every now and then I, I'll throw around the term, you know, with, with my family or with friends, um, democratic media, right, is, or participatory media. Right. And, right. and folks don't connect with it. You know, they don't, they, they hear that and they're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. You know, like I'm inundated with, con you know, with, con you know, I turn on the TV and there's just things being, being thrown at me. Do we really need more voices out there? Isn't it? You know, it's the level of consciousness on this issue. Um, and the frames of the language that we use um, really needs to improve a lot to get to a point of change and, you know, whether it's legislative or, or really just kind of public enthusiasm for, uh, for the amazing things that are happening on, on the scene. Yes. And I, and I, 
I like to think that by having more uh, opportunities, you know, whether it's um, local radio or local television from a, a public access channel and a public access center or a community-owned fiber optic or wireless network, that hopefully with all these different opportunities, people will be uh, more aware of what's available to them. So I really, I really want to thank you and, and all the great work that Prometheus has done. Uh, and thank you for coming on the show to, to talk about these issues with us. Yeah, thank you so much, Chris. It's a pleasure. That was Chris talking with Sanjay Jolly from the Prometheus Radio Project. You can learn more at prometheusradio.org. We also follow the project at muninetworks.org and try to keep you updated on the low-power radio movement. Thanks again for spending time with us at the Broadband Bits podcast. Please don't hesitate to contact us with your ideas for the show. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at communitynets. This show was released on August 27, 2013. Thank you again to the group Break the Bands for their song, Escape, licensed using Creative Commons. And thank you for listening. I shall.